We're going to be in John chapter 7 today. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you. When I was growing up, I uh, spent the majority of my childhood growing up in, in Santa Barbara, or all of my childhood really, from the time I was four on. And uh, one of the things I loved to do was build forts. And at the time that I was growing up, there were a lot of building projects around us. And so my friends and I would go at the end of the day and in the the garbage piles, the discard piles were all of these pieces of plywood and wood and nails. And we just had like endless supplies of stuff to go and build forts in the creeks and above ground, underground and trees. And it was just like one of my favorite things to do is get all my friends together and build forts. And growing up in Santa Barbara, it was forts were cool because a lot of us came from different backgrounds. Some of us lived in like massive incredible houses that I couldn't imagine. I grew up myself in a one-story house, very humble, probably was 1,100 square feet, and sometimes with two other brothers, that just did not seem like enough. But when you were outside in a fort, you know, kind of at night having sleepovers, looking up at the stars, you know, or just hanging out all day, playing, it was just, it was awesome because it was just kind of cool to be outside enjoying nature and kind of on the same level. And today we're going to be looking at uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also called the Feast of Booths. And we, not booths, but booths, B-O-O-T-H-S. And it is a time where the Israelites every year would remember the wilderness wandering and how they had to live in temporary shelters. And it reminded them of the fact that God provided for them and he also dwelt with them. So we're going to be looking at that today in our text, but that's uh, kind of the background of that. And Let's jump in chapter 7. I'm going to pick it apart as we go, and we'll see what John has for us. John begins, after this, Jesus traveled around Galilee, and he wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters or tabernacles. Uh, it's kind of a vague time reference again as we begin our passage. You don't really know how much time is transpire between chapter 5 and chapter 6, but um, the events in chapter uh, 6 took place um, just before Passover, and Passover's around April, and the Feast of Tabernacles was near, and that was in October, so we can conclude from this that Jesus spent about six months in Galilee doing the ministry that he and the disciples were involved in, and it was safer in Galilee than in Judea because his enemies, those who wanted to put him to death and arrest him, were in Judea. The Feast of Tabernacles, as you may recall, is one of the three great Jewish feasts. Of course, the, another one is Passover, and another one, a little bit more obscure that many of us forget, is called the Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Weeks celebrated when Moses received the Ten Commandments. But these were kind of the three uh, big ones. And it was a time of joy uh, because it was around harvest time. So there was a lot of Thanksgiving and celebration that went on. And as I said, it was also known as the Feast of Booths because devout Jews lived outdoors and booths made of tree branches for seven days as a reminder of God's provision in the Old Testament wanderings, wilderness wanderings. Leviticus 23 talks all about that. And this is what God instructed his people. He said that they were to make these temporary shelters that the generations to come might know that I made the people of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
God was big about uh, his people recounting history and his faithfulness and his promises and kind of their journey with him so that generations yet to be born would know of their roots and their history and never forget. And observing this command, as I said, not only helped the Israelites remember that God provides, but it also helped them to remember that God literally dwelt with them in the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. Now today we kind of view God dwelling with us as inferior to God dwelling within us through the power of Holy Spirit uh, post-Pentecost. But for the Jews of this day, God living in their midst, Jesus coming to earth and pitching tent, becoming flesh, was a huge thing for them and they celebrated that. The feast was one of the required festivals that every Jewish man living within a 15-mile radius was required to attend. But Jews, even from beyond the 15-mile radius, loved to come because it was a time of celebration. It was a time of making forts and living outside, and everybody was kind of on the same level. It was a lot of fun. During the festival, booze sprang up everywhere, on the flat rooftops, uh, in the streets, in the city squares, in, in the gardens, and even in the very temple courts. Like everywhere you went, there were temporary forts set up. And the law stipulated that the forts or the booths could not be permanent, that they had to be specially built for the occasion, um, probably so that they didn't have them all over the place after the feast, because a lot of people probably would have loved to continue living out there. But one of the most interesting things I read about the history of this feast is that it said it was not only a time for the rich, but also for servants and for widows and for the poor, those who were disenfranchised and alienated in the day, those who were considered less than. It was a time for them to celebrate as well. It was a time of sharing in this universal joy. So it was a big thing. Verse 3, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. Basically, go public. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. Jesus' siblings had seen the miracles. They had seen the healings. They had seen the exorcisms. But this hadn't led to faith or belief in who he was which was the whole point of it all for Jesus. They saw really the goal of Jesus' ministry as popularity, gaining acceptance with the people. Whereas Jesus' goal, his aim, was the revelation of his true identity as the Messiah, that he might bring salvation to a world in need of a Savior. That was his goal. And really what we can learn from this, John is giving us evidence that Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faith. Whether you're blood-related, whether you're a disciple, like just being near him alone does not generate faith. Just coming to church every Sunday doesn't mean that you're a person of faith or belief. James goes to great lengths to say that it's one thing to hear the Word of God, it's another thing to practice it and make it a part of our life. Well, Jesus replies in verse 6, Now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to this festival. 
And really, the idea in the Greek here is yet, because a lot of scholars and theologians think, well, he's lying, because he tells him he's not going, then he ends up going. But stay with me, we'll explain this. Because my time has not yet come. After saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. There are several times in the book of John, in particular, out of all the Gospels, where we read that phrase that Jesus' time or his hour has not yet come. We read that back in chapter 2, verse 4. We read it here. We'll read it again in verse 8 in a few verses, and a little bit later in verse 30. And then again, it's in chapter 8, verse 20. If you want, turn a little bit ahead in your Bible with me. Look at John 13, because I want you to see something that should have been a huge clue for the disciples. John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the end. And then look at the kind of toward the end of the upper room discourse in John 17, verse 1, as Jesus is praying what has become known as the high priestly prayer to his Father. Chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. If you and I were one of the 12 disciples around the table, the hair on the back of our necks would have stood up because Jesus was constantly throughout his ministry saying, my time has not come, the hour is not yet, you know. But now he's saying, it's time, game on, game on. And they didn't have a clue what that meant, but they knew it's all coming down. Lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So we see this theme throughout John of Jesus' hour, his time, and it really concludes with the cross. And the word that John uses here for time is a word that means opportunity. It literally means the best time to do something, the moment when circumstances are most suitable. So what Jesus is really saying is, if I go up with you now, I won't get the opportunity that I'm looking for. It isn't the opportune time. And so he delayed until the middle of the festival, since arriving with the crowds all assembled and expectant gave him a far better opportunity than going at the beginning of the feast. And this theme of divine timing is, is really Another example of how we cannot force God's hand. I think about the last time we saw something like this was chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. And Mary says, they're out of wine. And, and Jesus is like, you know, what is that to me? Like, it, it's, he was working according to God's timetable, God's will, not his mom's and not anyone else's. And he made that very clear. Like, you're my mom and I love you and I've always been obedient and respected you, but, you know... This is game time now. I'm officially starting my ministry. I'm making my way to the cross, and I follow my Father's lead. I follow His will and His timetable. And Jesus is saying the same thing again here to the crowd. Verse 10, after His brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly, staying out of the public view. The Jewish authorities tried to find Him at the festival and kept saying if anyone had seen Him. There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowd. Some argued, he's a good man, but others said, he's not. He's nothing but a fraud who deceives the people. 
Verse 13, but no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public, for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. Then midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and began to preach. And the people were surprised, astonished. The Greek word is marveled. They marveled when they heard him. How does this man know so much when he hasn't been trained, they asked they were amazed and they marveled that he was learned, that his, his speaking, his preaching, his teaching was spiritually penetrating. Other places in the Gospels, it tells us that because he spoke with authority and not like the religious leaders who had kind of a, an authority by association, but Jesus spoke authoritatively himself. And they thought, how is he doing this when he hasn't been to any rabbinical school? They couldn't understand how this was possible. Verse 16, Jesus told them, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves. But a person who seeks to honor the one who sent him speaks truth, not lies. The religious authorities figured that either a person studied at a traditional school or that they were self-taught. And Jesus throws out a third alternative that they hadn't really even considered. His teaching was from God, and he was commissioned by God. Jesus was God-taught, and so to know him properly, people needed to be God-taught, just as Jesus had said in the last chapter. Listen to what Jesus said Back in chapter 6, one chapter ago, verse 44 and 45, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me, and at the last day I will raise them up. And here it is. And as it is written in the scriptures, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. So Jesus is saying that God teaches every single one of us through His Word and through the Holy Spirit. And that's where His teaching came from because of that unique, uh, intimate relationship that He has with the Father. Well, the next part of our passage, I want you to, I want you to picture properly because it's kind of confusing who Jesus is talking to. You need to understand and picture in this next part. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, but the crowd is gathered all around. And so they are part of this, and they are listening in. And Jesus is saying a lot of things that they don't understand. It doesn't make sense to them. But Jesus is confronting the leaders. He's calling them out in public. And it, it doesn't add up to the crowd, but the leaders know exactly what he's saying. Verse 21, he says, I did one miracle on the Sabbath, and you were amazed. And you might be thinking, now, what is that one miracle? Well, think about the last time that he was in Jerusalem. The last time he was in Jerusalem, he healed the man by the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. He, he raised him up, and it was on the Sabbath. And so they were still frustrated about that. They didn't understand why he would do such a thing on the Sabbath. Jesus goes on in verse 22. You work on the Sabbath, too, when you obey Moses' law of circumcision. The text says, actually, the tradition of circumcision began with the patriarchs long before the law of Moses. For if the correct time for circumcising your son falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and do it so as not to break the law of Moses. So why should you be angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? 
Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. Jesus' argument here is absolutely masterful. The, the Mosaic law stipulated that on the eighth day, a boy was to be circumcised. If that day happened to fall on the Sabbath, the Jews went ahead with the circumcision so as not to break the law of Moses. Jesus is saying, if, if you view it as okay and permissible to heal or to work on one part of the body, why should you find fault with me working on the whole body and raising up this paralytic and giving him life? If, if you routine, routinely break the law, why are you wanting to kill me for breaking the law one time in your presence? And, and it, it, the, the masterful nature of this argument goes a little bit further, because if you think about it, circumcision is really a form of mutilation. I mean, it was commanded and required, but you are literally cutting off a part of the body. And Jesus is like, if it's okay with you to mutilate the body and cut off a part, how much better that I am healing the body and making it whole on the Sabbath? Verse 25, some of the people who lived in Jerusalem started to ask each other, <coughs> isn't this the man that they're trying to kill? But here he is speaking in public, and they say nothing to him. Could our leaders possibly believe that he is the Messiah? But how could he be? For we know where this man comes from. And when the Messiah comes, he will simply appear. No one will know where he comes from. The crowd is surprised that Jesus is teaching in the temple courts. They're surprised that the religious leaders are allowing it. They're surprised that Jesus has the courage and the authority to preach and teach despite the hostility and the resistance. And so they're thinking, if the religious leaders are letting him teach, maybe he is the Messiah and the leaders know it. But then as quickly as they thought that thought, they dismissed it because they're like, no, we know that the Messiah is going to come out of nowhere. He's going to be this man of mystery. And we know that Jesus is from Nazareth and we know his parents, and we know his brothers and sisters. We know everything about him, so he can't be the Messiah. Brittany's talking about their kind of schizophrenia, that on one hand they said the Messiah was a man of mystery, and on the other hand they knew that he would be from the line of David, that he would be born in Bethlehem, and all these other things that were very specific. And so their expectations were, were, were pretty confused in this regard. Verse 28, when Jesus was teaching in the temple, he cried out, yes, you know me, and you know where I came from, but I'm not here on my own. The one who sent me is true, and you don't know him, but I know him because I come from him, and he sent me to you. That, that phrase, cried out, is, is introducing a solemn announcement. Back in chapter 1, verse 15, we, we saw that phrase as well. John the Baptist was the one who cried out. And what did he say? He kind of like lost his breath. This is the one. This is the one I've been talking about. That's the guy. The one who's of a higher rank than I am because he existed before me. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Follow him, not me. This is where all my preaching has been leading. So Jesus also is is issuing a solemn announcement here. And you have to understand that it was a pretty bitter insult to tell God's people, the Jewish people, that they didn't know God. 
They thought, out of all people, we know, who are you to say that we don't know God? That made no sense. That he alone knew God as no one else did. Relationship to God. This is really one of the great turning points of Jesus' ministry, because up until this point, he's, he's merely a Sabbath breaker, which alone was a serious thing. But now he has really committed the unpardonable sin in their mind, which is the sin of blasphemy, because he is talking about God and about Israel according in, in their minds as no human had the right to speak, which in its, of itself should have been a clue that he was not merely just a human. But they thought, now he's really committed the unpardonable sin. Verse 30, then the leaders tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, again, because his time, his hour had not yet come. We see this again. The sovereignty of God trumps the plans and the schemes of men every time. Beautiful thing here. The Father had ordained a time and a place for Christ's death. And until then, everything would work together in concert toward that goal. They could not lay a hand on Christ because the Father's hand was over him, protecting him. What, what a lesson for you and I about the sovereignty of God, about God's care and protection of us despite our scheming and our plans and the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We doubt God's sovereignty over and over again because things don't always make sense to us. God does not work according to how we would like Him to work or expect Him to work. But we need to understand God is always in control. God works all things together for good. Not everything that happens to us or that happens in this world is good, but that is the power of God, that he can take even pure evil and turn it into something that's redemptive. God's sovereignty, powerful. Verse 31, well, many among the, the crowds of the temple believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? When the Pharisees heard that the crowds were whispering such things, they and the leading priests sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. But Jesus told them, I will be with you a little longer than I will return to the one who sent me. You will search for me, but you will not find me. And you cannot go where I am going. <clears throat> Those words, you look for me, are really a prophecy. And it's really a haunting prophecy. Because to this day, the Jewish people are still looking for the Messiah. And they don't realize that it is Jesus that he came and fulfilled every prophecy, that he was, in fact, the one sent from God for our salvation in our place. And they're still looking for him. They're still longing for him, not knowing that it's him. Zechariah 12.10 says this, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Again in Revelation, last book of the Bible, chapter 1, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. The time of spiritual opportunity we see is now. 
The time of spiritual opportunity is now. Because a time will come when it's too late, when that opportunity is no longer there. That's why Scripture says repeatedly, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts like your forefathers did. And Scripture also says that seek Him while He may be found. Seek Him while He is near. Like there is an opportunity to respond. Uh, So beautifully illustrated or hauntingly illustrated in the parable of the virgins who go to the wedding. And and some are prepared and some aren't. And the ones who are prepared enter in and the ones who aren't prepared are left out. Like there is a time to be ready and there is a time when it is too late. The Jewish leaders were puzzled by the statement, verse 35. Where is he planning to go, they asked. Is he looking or thinking of leaving the country and going to the Jews in other lands? Maybe he's even going to go and teach the Greeks. Like, that's crazy. What does he mean when he says, you will search for me and not find me, and where I am going you cannot follow? Well, verse 37, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood, which is significant because remember, when rabbis taught, they sought down. But Jesus stands up and shouts to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from their very heart. You need to understand that with the Feast of Tabernacles, there were certain rituals that were carried out. And we've, we've talked about this before when we've covered this passage. One of them re- involved a procession of the priests and people um, the destination is unclear. Some say that they went to the Gihon Springs. Some say they went to the Pool of Siloam. Well, the Gihon Springs were up above Jerusalem. They flowed underneath Jerusalem through the Hezekiah Tunnel that I've told you about, which is a trip. If you ever go to Israel, you've got to go through Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's, it's the tunnel that they carved during times of war so that they had a supply of water without having to go outside of the city and be vulnerable. But that Gihon Spring flows through the city and it empties in the Pool of Siloam. So whether they got the water from the actual spring or where the spring ended up, they would take a pitcher of water, and for seven days, the priests and the people would march and get the water and come back to the temple and pour the water out over the altar. So that was part of this ritual that they would do over and over again. Numbers chapter 20 uh, tells us about this. God instructed you and Aaron, he's saying to Moses and Aaron, must take your staff or your rod and assemble the entire community. As the people watch, speak to the rock over there and it will pour out its water. You will pro- it will provide enough water for the, uh, the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. So Moses did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord Then he and Aaron, some of the people to come gather at the rock. Listen, you rebels, he shouted. Must we bring water to you from this rock? And then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with a staff, which he got in trouble with because God said, I didn't need you to be all dramatic. (laughs) You know, you're being like a showman, like it's you striking the rock. All you had to do was speak to it and tap it. So, you know, bummer on you for making it about you. Then Moses raised his hands and struck the rock twice, and water gushed out, so the entire community and their livestock drank from it. So the Israelites are remembering God's providing water in the wilderness, and they're reenacting this through this. 
Also, it speaks of Zechariah 14. In that day, the living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea, and it will be in summer as well as in winter. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Israel will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So Zechariah is proclaiming, in the last day, everybody who, who came against Israel is actually themselves going to go annually to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Booths, God's providence and the fact that he can bring water out of a rock. Verse 39, when Jesus said, living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. Verse 40, when the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others said, but he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? For the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where David was born. I thought you guys just said, as Brittany was mentioning a few, that he's going to be a man of mystery. We don't know where he's going to come from. They seem quite confused. Well, we know according to 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 11 that the Messiah would be born of the Davidic family. We know from the prophecy in Micah chapter 5 that he would be born in Bethlehem. And as you read in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus, and Luke chapter 3, as well as Romans 1, we find out that he meets all of that. He is from the line of David. He is born in, in Bethlehem. He is from the tribe of Judah. Everything lines up exactly with what was prophesied about the Messiah. Verse 43, so the crowd was divided about him because they were ignorant of all these facts. They thought he was from Nazareth. They didn't know he was actually born in Bethlehem because his parents came to be part of the census. Verse 44, some even wanted to arrest him or have him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. When the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, why didn't you bring him in? The soldiers responded, we have never heard anyone speak like this. Have you been led astray too? The Pharisees mocked. Is there a single one of the rulers of the Pharisees who believes in him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they're ignorant of the law. God's curse is on them. The Pharisees questioned the guards as to if any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him, revealing their pride and their arrogance that they didn't think that they could be led astray by a deceiver because they were so educated. They thought that it was the, the crowd that was stupid and gullible. Ironically, many of these leaders did come to faith. Later on in chapter 12, we'll read these words in verse 42. Many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. In John chapter 19, we find out that Nicodemus himself, as well as Joseph of Arimathea, both members of the Sanhedrin, believed in Christ as well. So there were a number of leaders who actually did believe, as arrogant and smart as they were, because they were compelled by Jesus' message. The Pharisees themselves were so jealous of Jesus' popularity that in chapter 12, they in their, own world, in their own words said, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world is following him. 
Like that was their impression. Like everyone is following him. Verse 50. Then Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he is given a hearing, he asked? Well, no. The Mosaic law, Deuteronomy 1, as well as rabbinic law, stipulated that, that anyone charged of a crime was entitled to a fair uh, uh, case to be heard. Verse 52, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. They're trying to shame Nicodemus, kind of like the other half of church, the study that we did, the shaming technique. Well, really, they're ignorant again because five prophets, in fact, came from Galilee. Jonah, Nahum, Hosea, Elijah, and Elisha, two of their greatest prophets. So they're really the ones that are in error. I want to draw four quick points of application as we look at all of this. And the first is our expectations in light of God's sovereignty. So many times, as I said, we expect one thing, and God doesn't work the way that we are expecting Him to work, and it's hard for us to understand. One of my favorite verses that I've shared before is Proverbs 16, 9. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. God is sovereign even in the midst of our free will. We build our houses, we, we build palaces, and then in the end we find out that they're really just temporary forts because God is building his eternal home inside of us. John chapter 14. He is the one who goes away to prepare a place for us that where, where he is, there we may be also. And so we realize that all of the things that we invest in and work so hard to beautify and, and you know, are, are really temporary and fleeting. And it's about the eternal home that he's building inside of us. The second thing that I like in this passage is you, you might enjoy that this week in the study guide that I've sent out. Um, if you don't have a copy, you can get it on uh, the website or have somebody email it to you or even ask me. But um, look at the questions that the crowd asks as opposed to the questions that the authorities ask. The crowd's questions are, are really genuine. They're seeking. What, Jesus doesn't make sense to them. It doesn't add up. But what he's doing, they can't deny but the, the Pharisees, the leaders, are just full of arrogance. Um, <coughs> verse 31, many of the crowds at the temple believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? They're, they're believing in spite of conflicting information. Whereas the arrogance of the Pharisees in verse 48, none of the rulers of the Pharisees have believed in him, has he? They're thinking, you know, we're the smart ones. Who cares if the idiots, the ignorant people have believed in him? None of us have. And yet, what does Jeremiah 29, verse 13 say? The Lord, in his own words, you will seek me and find me. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. God honors those who genuinely seek him. Not as kind of a cover or a screen or something else to but those who genuinely seek him. The last thing I want to end with is Jesus' proclamation of verse 38, living water, because I, I believe that living water really at its very essence is about a living relationship with God through Jesus. And Jesus makes that clear. When, when Jesus promised streams of living water would flow from within the person who believes in him, he, he was speaking of a continual source of life 
and satisfaction. Much like he promised the woman at the well in John chapter 4. The same thing. In fact, or the fact that Jesus announced this invitation on the last day of the ceremony was, was doubly significant because on the last day of that ritual, they actually marched seven times down to the spring and back to the altar and poured the water to commemorate the seven-day march or the seven-time march around uh, Jericho before the walls fell down and they captured it. But on this last day, Jesus stands up and makes this amazing proclamation. And in essence, he's saying, you know, you're thankful and glorifying God for the water that quenches the thirst of your bodies. But I am the one who can give you the water that will quench the thirst of your soul. Come to me for that. Understand what I'm offering. It's like what Isaiah talked about in his prophetic book, chapter 58. The Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your needs in parched places. He will make your bones strong, and you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Well, cutting to the chase, friends, I believe that Jesus is, in fact, the living water. It's not that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I will have like waters of living water flowing. No, we are indwelled by the person of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. He is the living water that flows out of us. That's, that's a beautiful thing that we learn in 1 Corinthians 10. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 10 says, and you can follow up on this with a study guide. Our fathers were all under the cloud that passed uh, through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate of the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul in the New Testament says that rock that followed the Israelites, that was Jesus Christ. When Moses struck the rock, it was out of Christ that the water flowed out and fed all the people and the flocks. And John does a very interesting thing in his gospel that all the other gospels don't really do. But John tells us that the water began to flow at the crucifixion. John chapter 19, verse 34. What happened when the soldier pierced the side of Jesus? Water and blood flowed out. And John tells us that the living water that Jesus promised, it began at the crucifixion. As he gave his life for us, that water started flowing. And when you turn to the last book of the Bible, in Revelation 22, you find that that water is flowing on into eternity and into the heavenly kingdom, when John writes, Revelation 22, then he showed me a river of, wa of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. In the middle of its street on either side, the river of life was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." So that water began at Christ's crucifixion and it's flowing into eternity, into the heavenly kingdom. It's going to be the, the water of life, the river of life in heaven that we all drink from and enjoy and that provides for all of us. And the question really for us today is, will we come and freely drink of this water that Jesus offers? That's an offer of salvation. It's an invitation to have a relationship with God through Christ, through His Son. If you're here today and you've never made that decision, it's the most important decision you can make. 
There is no relationship with God. There is no peace with God. There is no forgiveness of sins apart from Jesus. Jesus paid the price for you. He paid it for me. It's not a work that we do. It's a gift of grace that he offers through his sacrifice. And we can either accept that and appropriate that, or we can reject it. But that's what it means to become a child of God. John starts his gospel that way. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his Son. I hope if you've never made that decision that you'll do it today, because now is the time of opportunity. And there's coming a day very quickly that'll be too late. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the conviction of your word, the challenge of your word, the encouragement of your word, how it inspires us and empowers us. Jesus, I thank you that you are the living water that brings life, that brings healing, that restores. And through your death, that water was released to bring life to anyone who would accept it. It continues to flow into eternity in the heavenly kingdom. God, what, what a beautiful picture of your heart, of your grace, and of your blessing. God, I pray that we would, each one of us, reach out and make that our own, God, that there would be no one here that would reject that, that would walk away and think that's not for me. God, as we gather today, we want to acknowledge that everything that we own, everything, every, all the money that we make is a gift from you, a blessing from you, and whether we feel like we have a, a little or a lot, we give back in part today, acknowledging that every good and perfect gift is from you. Take our money today, whether we physically donate it here or we do online, and bless it and multiply it for the needs of this church, the needs of this community, and the ministries we support, as well as the missionaries around the world that are doing your kingdom work, Lord God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.